Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mohscollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knackstead once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Nateen Pagadar from the University of Iowa. He's an associate professor of olaryngology, head and neck surgery there. Nateen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Um, great to be here with you. So we um, focus a lot in our podcast, especially in the last few episodes for our listeners on high-risk squamous cell carcinoma. But I find that all too often our, our conversation ends where, where your world sort of starts. And it made it for a perfect um, article that you recently published. And this is in the Annals of Otology, Rhinology, and Laryngology on Survival Outcomes for Advanced Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma of the head and neck. So give us a little bit of your background in terms of the management of skin cancer, and then maybe we'll talk about how this study came to be and what the key findings were from your group. Yeah, so um, this article came out of, uh, you know, sort of the day-to-day practice. When, when we are seeing skin cancer patients, uh, it means that, uh, you know, we work very closely with our colleagues in dermatology here. Uh, and when patients end up coming to us for problems like this, uh, it makes you wonder about, uh, you know, whether we could have intervened uh, before that and, and sort of, you know, the problems are not nearly as, uh, as easily solved. Um, and so we decided to look at our experience and figure out, you know, when we are doing larger operations um, for patients with advanced cutaneous cancers, what kind of outcomes do we get? And it leads to some other questions that we didn't answer in this manuscript and we can talk about later about, uh, you know, how well we meet patients' needs when they have complicated problems and complicated treatment for those skin cancers. And so it's sort of one thing to say, all right, we have an updated eighth edition of the AJCC and we can define T3 or T4 tumors based on that. But that sort of isn't the whole story of the patient. So give us some examples of, of what are these patients walking in? What are these tumors that you're encountering and, and that make up uh, this particular study, because I don't think it's justified to just say this is a tumor that's four centimeters and has perineal invasion, because that just doesn't seem like it's the entire story. Yeah, I would agree. I think that uh, there are, I think that you hit a number of the items right there as in your description. I think that the key in managing these, uh, in managing patients with cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma in particular, is managing the margins, managing perineural disease adequately. And, and increasingly, well, there's an increasing effort these days paid to adequately managing the nodes, uh, because I think, I think that hasn't, the nodes hasn't necessarily been an optimal part of the conversation we've had about these patients over the years. And I think we're now sort of turning to, turning attention to making sure that we don't allow people to fail in that way as well. And so I think you have to come down to not just the size of the tumor, but yeah, I think perineural disease is a huge factor in how these folks do. 
Uh, and then attention to the kind, you know, when patients have tumors that are advanced that involve the orbits or the periorbital soft tissues, uh, the nasal cavity or the sort of the delicate structures of the nose, uh, the auricles, uh, the ear canals. Uh, I think that, you know, what this paper comes down to is when we are doing surgery that would be functioning, function limiting, or sometimes even uh, hesitating to use the word disfiguring, how, uh, how aggressive should we be? And does it make sense to be more aggressive versus not being more aggressive for those cases? I think that's a, a really interesting concept that I definitely want to get, get back to because in a moment, I'll, I'll discuss with our, or, or share with our listeners the fact that there is a, definitely a subset of patients that has persistent margin positivity at the conclusion of surgery. And that's sort of weighing the risk-benefit of further resection versus disfigurement, functional impairment, et cetera. But before we get there, um, for those listeners who haven't read through your paper, tell us a little bit about how you define radical excisions versus a conventional wide local excision. What are the sort of procedures these patients underwent in an attempt to, to have margin clearance? Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, we use the word radical, and I think that word gets used in a variety of contexts when it comes to cancer surgery. Uh, and so we made a, you know, we tried to make a pretty straightforward definition so that we could communicate what we were doing. We referred, I we used the word radical to describe surgery for cutaneous head and neck cancers that, and I was trying to get at operations that would limit function or, or remove function. Uh, or those that would be uh, perceived by patients or people around those patients as being disfiguring. So uh, those refer to temporal bone resection, for example, that would entail removal of the structures of a middle ear that would result in a, a maximal conductive hearing loss on that ear. Uh, orbital exoneration, of course, with both functional and uh, disfigurement consequences. Uh, calvarial resection, so removal of the bone of the skull, like craniectomy. Uh, and then maxillectomy and mandibulectomy. Uh, and those are, uh, you know, they're all they're, they're all quite different from each other in terms of the kinds of functions that get limited, how well we can reconstruct them. Uh, they're, they're, it's a, it's, it is a, a varied group, um, but we refer to those things as the radical operations and operations that didn't require those particular operations as uh, those that were not radical. So they may have been, you know, the non-radical operations may have been enormous resections of scalp skin. Uh, but if it didn't involve the bone, I would not have called it radical for the purposes of this particular paper. Got it. No, and I think that's really helpful because, like I said in the introduction, for a lot of this conversation, your world sort of starts where where mine starts to taper out in terms of of what what procedures I and and my colleagues do. So, sort of the the big picture. What was it that you found when looking at these forty three patients who had T3 or T4 tumors in terms of types of treatments, how successful are you with your treatments? So there were no significant surprises in this manuscript. I guess it's probably the first thing I would say uh, that in terms of the kinds of patients, you know, these are, most of them were men. Many of them had had, had prior cancers. Almost 30% had a history of immunosuppression. Uh, these were, uh, these were patients that had uh, high risk uh, lesions. Uh, we were not particularly surprised as we looked at uh, observed survival, in which we found uh, about two-year uh, median observed survival in these cases. Uh, and I think 
with regards to radical surgery, uh, what we found was that there were no significant differences in observed survival in patients that had radical operations of the kinds that I listed before and those that didn't. And the takeaway for me is that you'd have to assume that those that had those radical operations, exonerations and temporal bone resections, probably had bigger or more aggressive or more advanced cancers than those that did not have those kinds of resections. Uh, and so if their survival outcomes were the same, it means that we're getting people somewhere by doing those radical operations. And so when you've had a patient, when I have a patient who is immunosuppressed and has had a large number of cutaneous malignancies, and this is one of a string, and they've had, you know, their auricular cancer or pre-auricular cancer excised many times, and this is, and I now I have to say, you know, we have to take out your whole oracle, we have to take out your ear canal, we have to do a major reconstruction, this is going to be a big operation, and you're not going to hear out of that ear again. What I can now tell them is, it turns out that there is some value in that, oncologically, that will get you somewhere by doing that. And it isn't, you know, hopefully your ability to survive this will be better than if we didn't do this. Now, I don't necessarily have that particular piece of information in the data that I uh, produced in this manuscript, but I think it helps patients to know that there seems to be, at least indirectly, some survival advantage to doing these radical operations. Sort of a very obvious and, and I guess, simple follow-up question to that. How important is surgical resection with curative intent to the survival of these patients? I mean, do we have good alternatives in your opinion? I don't think we do. So we have, uh, especially for many of these cases that we are talking about in that, in the, among the patients that require radical surgery, I think that there is some data suggesting that for limited size cutaneous basal and squamous cell carcinomas that oncologic outcomes after radiotherapy are acceptable. Um, but I think when we are talking about, for example, periorbital skin cancers, I think that what we end up running into is limiting you know, radiotherapy resulting in painful and non-functional eyes. Uh, and so uh, the, the functional implications of non-surgical treatment are, are not a whole lot better than those with surgical treatment. And I think when we can show a limitation of doses to other surrounding structures, it makes sense to think about surgery and adjuvant radiotherapy rather than definitive radiotherapy. Um, I think that, you know, as in the rest of the cancer world, over a period of time, we're going to see the impacts of immunotherapy and, and those kinds of drugs on cutaneous cancers. And I think that remains to be seen. I don't have any personal experience applying immunotherapy to these you know, very advanced or even advanced um, cutaneous cancers in the head and neck. But at some point, I'm sure that we're going to see some data about that, and it'll be interesting to see. I, I completely agree with you, and I think we are at such an interesting time point in the conversation we have in five years when we have more data on either adjuvant or, or neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy may change the landscape a little bit, but for, for where we are right now, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, when you look at your patients, be it from an anatomic standpoint, be it from a patient characteristic standpoint, within your head and neck skin, are there ones that you were surprised have a consistently worse outcome than the rest? I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in your study, actually the ear relative to all other sites did fairly well, whereas the, the scalp skin tended to have pretty aggressive and, and poor outcome. Is that, is, am I remembering that correctly? That, that is what we found, and that's actually the opposite of what I would have guessed based on, uh, you know, experience over the, over the years. It is, 
you know, these are 43 patients, and so uh, a larger study may have given us different outcomes. I don't have a good explanation for that. I would have thought the ear would have been the higher risk of those two sites, and the periorbital scan as well. I would have thought that would have been a higher risk. Right, yeah. I, I, I guess I, I'm in the same camp, although I think our tumor board has been just absolutely replete with immunosuppressed transplant patients who've had terrible squamous cell carcinoma of the scalp that basically recurs outside of resection margins with just a terrible frequency. So may, maybe what we really need to focus on is what's the biology of these scalp squamous cell carcinoma that makes them so persistent and, and potentially aggressive? Okay, yeah, there's, you know, there is certainly a possibility that the, uh, even though there are, you know, the scalp cancers uh, were more likely to occur in immunosuppressed patients or those with other risk factors and 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 maybe the the difference in outcome speaks more to their immunosuppression than to the than to the site on the scalp or the ear. I don't know that I have that information in front of me about this this cohort. Before we go on to talking about nodes from a uh, head and neck surgery standpoint, um, is there a particular scenario? I I don't recall if it was actually broken down in the manuscript or not. Where you say I encounter persistently positive margins more frequently than other times? Is it going into the external auditory canal? Is it around the eye? Is it around the nose? Is there one area where you're more likely uh, that you think you encounter that behavior? Uh, I seem to see it in the ear. You know, this is a maybe non-scientific way to think about it, but just to, as, I, as my gut feeling, uh, thinking about, you know, patients that have come across, come through my clinic over the years, it seems like it's the ear. Uh, it seems like, uh, and I think in all those places, there is a tendency among all of us managing smaller skin cancers to say, you know, let's cut the margin here a little closer. We don't want the, we don't want the border, the ala of the nose to be disfigured. We don't want the eyelid, to, you know, we don't want to cause trouble with the globe. So we'll maybe tolerate a closer margin here versus there. And I think the ear is part of that as well. I think that, uh, you know, I work with fantastic uh, otologic surgeons here. Our, our recent thinking has been in the ear that we end up, you know, even even with close margins in the ear canal, when people end up with stenotic ear canals, they don't tend to be happier than, than when they had their cancer. Uh, that can be a bad problem that requires them to come into clinic all the time and really causes troublesome symptoms. And so we've been much more aggressive in, in the nature of surgery we offer patients with ear canal cancers. Uh, and it, because that's, you know, I suppose I'm bringing that up as something we've discussed as a team fairly recently. But it seems like the ear is the place more so than anything else. Very interesting. Now, when we think about nodal disease, nodal staging, um, let me start off by asking you about how you think about cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma versus mucosal head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. Based on staging, based on biology, are there behaviors where you can say this is where they're very similar and this is where I see them to be very different in how I manage them? I think historically, for reasons that I'm not sure I can explain, we've thought about them differently. And it is a routine thing, for example, in oral cavity cancer or patients with a larynx cancer or in the oropharynx, pretty much all the upper air digestive tract sites that we see on a regular basis. Um, there are many, many, many times in which we do elective node dissection, meaning we have a scan and a physical examination that don't reveal any evidence of 
neck adenopathy or nodal adenopathy in the, in the basin we are thinking of, even in the salivary glands. Uh, and we would routinely in those cases, not all of them, but many of them, uh, remove what seem to be normal nodes. We do it all the time. Uh, and I think that that was never really the dogma when managing cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas. And I think we've only, in the last five years or so, there have been, there's been a growth in the literature saying, you know, maybe it's not that different. And, uh, and maybe there are cases for whom elective neck dissection makes sense. Maybe now that we have more experience with sentinel lymph node biopsy for oral cavity cancer, uh, maybe that makes sense for some of these uh, uh, cutaneous squamous cell carcinomas like we do for uh, melanomas. Uh, I think there's a lot more attention now. There is still, uh, I think the literature is not totally clear like it is for the oral cavity, that there are particular clinical circumstances in which elective node dissection should be applied. I think there are times in which we do it fairly regularly. Uh, for, for example, when there are um, parotid nodes for a cutaneous cancer involving the facial skin or the scalp, then we would routinely sort of extend that dissection into the neck. If we are doing free tissue reconstruction, so we're borrowing skin from the thigh or the forearm and uh, transplanting it, including blood vessels, into the, into the primary site and sewing vascular anastomoses into the neck vessels as a, you know, sort of state-of-the-art complex reconstruction. Uh, routinely, we'd have to access the blood vessels in the neck in order to do that reconstruction. And uh, we are looking at the lymph nodes as we do that. And so most of the time, we would remove the nodes uh, because they're sort of in the way anyway. It makes sense to me, though, that there probably are circumstances in which we should think about elective nodal treatment. Uh, and I think it's probably these large, more advanced, multiply recurrent tumors in patients with immunosuppressed uh, statuses uh, are the ones that probably would benefit from elective node dissection. And you bring up a good point because I think one of the challenges in the cutaneous world is that all too often you feel like you're trying to find the, the needle in the haystack and we've got this huge denominator of skin cancers that we can't really successfully track on a national level in any registry. But if you talk to enough head and neck surgeons, plastic surgeons, dermatologists, we've all had patients die from cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma. And so the, the, the art of medicine, I guess, or where we have this true knowledge gap is knowing who needs further evaluation of their, their lymph nodes, be it by sentinel node, be it through imaging, be it by an elective neck dissection. How do you approach the, the thought or what is your thought on, on sentinel node in the context of what you know about head and neck in the context of what you know about melanoma, are you more of a thumbs up or a thumbs down guy in cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma? So I think our experience with melanoma is uh, makes me wonder about what the differences are between melanoma and some of the other things for which sentinel node uh, biopsy has been more practiced. I've kind of been a thumbs down person about sentinel node biopsy for cutaneous melanoma, and I think that the data seems to point to there being some important biology in between the presence of melanoma cells and the production of a better prognosis uh, by identification of those cells in a, uh, in a small node. You know, it is, in and whether that's the biology of skin cancer or whether that's the particular biology of melanoma in comparison to a different kind of histology in the skin, I think remains to be seen. It is, 
I think Mel Sentinel Node Biopsy offers, I think the advantage is best stated on a theoretical level. And, you know, it just sort of makes sense that you sample this one or two nodes that are at highest risk, and that should tell you all the information you need. And I think in practice, uh, I think the benefits are not as clear as that sort of biological, oncological theory might predict them to be. And so I think there, there may be some important biology in the way, and, you know, immunology seems to be the, seems to be, seems to explain that biology. So at this point, no, I, I'm not, uh, I am not terribly high on the concept of sentinel node biopsy in, in many contexts. Uh, and I think the other part of it is the practical limitations of sentinel node biopsy are that there are times in which, boy, it seems like you'd be better off or more safe, uh, just doing a standard node dissection in some of these patients, uh, because it can be difficult to adequately identify and, and remove these small sentinel nodes in the neck, where you put the same structures at risk, but you don't get to see them as well during the sentinel node procedure. Not to mention, you know, variable sensitivity, specificity, false, false negative rates. When I listen to head and neck surgeons, when I have them speak at our, our conference, I, I'm actually going to take a step back here. And a lot of the things that come up in casual conversation, especially some of my, my younger, most surgery colleagues may not actually be that critically familiar with. So I want to just give you some terms and have you maybe explain them on the level for a recent fellow graduate, finishing dermatology resident with an interest in cutaneous oncology, et cetera. So for example, let's start with the fact that when we think about cervical nodes, we think about levels of nodes, sort of one through seven. Can you sort of walk me through the, the, how, how nodal staging, how, how you conceptualize the location of various lymph nodes? Yes. So the uh, level, so that these are, these are sort of uh, anatomically based, uh, and the definitions of those nodal stations really come, are made on the basis of ways in which both clinicians and radiologists can agree with each other on what they're seeing. So all of the uh, borders between nodal stations are things that a radiologist can see, uh, as well as things that a clinician might be able to uh, surmise on the basis of a clinical examination. So level one would be the submental and submandibular nodes. So these are above the level of the posterior belly of digastric, uh, below the level of the mandible, uh, and uh, basically from the mastoid tip medially to the, uh, basically it goes to the contralateral anterior belly of digastric. So those are the, the highest uh, nodes, both submental and submandibular. Then we go from along the jugular vein, that'll be levels two, three, and four the two at the top and four at the bottom. The border between level two and level three is the hyoid bone. The border between level three and level four is the cricoid cartilage. And then uh, the uh, level five would be the posterior triangle. So that's bordered anteriorly by the sternocleidomastoid and posteriorly by the trapezius. Uh, those two come together near the mastoid tip at the top of the neck. And at the bottom, the third limb of that triangle is the clavicle. Uh, we look, we consider level six of the neck to be what's called the central neck. So the theoretical definition is from the hyoid down to the superior mediastinum to the innominate artery. Uh, for some period of time in history, we referred to level seven as from the thoracic inlet down to the innominate artery, and level six would be from the hyoid down to the thoracic inlet. 
the lateral borders of level 6 and level 7 were the carotid arteries. Uh, but I think the most recent classification has sort of eliminated level 7 as a separate classification, and we take level 6 all the way down to the superior mediastinum, or into the superior mediastinum. A level 6 is the one that we relatively rarely see involved by skin cancers. Uh, and the principle of these levels and much of the data that surrounds them is that when we think about any particular primary tumor in the upper air digestive tract, or for that matter, uh, in the cutaneous distributions of the head and neck, uh, that they're the nodes, quote unquote, responsible for draining those patches of skin uh, are predictable. So that, you know, you think about uh, posterior triangle related to the parotid nodes, the suboccipital nodes might be related to scalp lesions, the periorbital nodes and nasal, nasal skin would relate to level one and level two. The lower lip would be uh, that submental triangle between the anterior bellies of digestion. Uh, and so it's uh, the levels of the neck are, allow us to communicate both with each other and with radiologists. Uh, and we get ideas about if we were going to do elective nodal dissection, you can just sort of memorize the list of things that you'd have to dissect when, uh, when considering any particular cutaneous site. I think that that's really important. And while it probably comes across as, as somewhat fundamental on, on your end, I think as we strive to be more multidisciplinary in nature, and we have these cutaneous tumor boards pop up all over the country where we have uh, head and neck surgeons, we've got radiologists, we've got radiation oncologists, but also dermatologists um, having a seat at the table to make sure that we speak a common language when we talk about how we approach patients and how we consider um, their risks. So thank you for that thorough explanation. Along that same line is really superficial parotidectomy. My questions here are a couple. What's superficial? What do you remove? But more importantly, that seems to be something that's oftentimes almost casually decided to do based on intangible intermediate risk features of a squamous cell, meaning I may have a squamous cell, margins are clear, but my head and neck surgery team and I have a conversation about whether or not this patient would benefit from a superficial parotidectomy. Walk me through the, the data we have there, or at least your, your thought process on that procedure. So I think of superficial parotidectomy for the purposes that you've just described as not that different from elective any other kind of elective node dissection. So taking a step back, there are lymph nodes that are found within the substance and the parenchyma of the parotid gland. And so uh, it, they form an important draining nodal basin for many cutaneous sites on the face and the scalp, the preauricular skin uh, and the lateral portions of the scalp. Uh, and so, I would think about superficial parotidectomy as a form of an elective node dissection or a therapeutic node dissection, for that matter. Uh, when we use that terminology, what it refers to specifically is that we take the portion of the parotid gland that is superficial to the facial nerve. So, as you recall, the facial nerve enters the parotid gland most of the time as a single main trunk, and then within the parenchyma of the gland, separates into upper and lower divisions and then the branches that go everywhere from the frontalis muscle down to the platysma and everything in between. That facial nerve and its branches define a plane that 
makes for a superficial part of the parotid, which is superficial to that plane, and then the deep part of the parotid. Fortunately for us, most of the lymph nodes, as a quote that I read in the literature, is around 85 to 90 percent of the nodes that are in the parotid live in the superficial lobe. And so we can think of the parotid nodes as basically almost entirely being encompassed in the superficial lobe. And so we can go and do an operation where we find the main trunk of the facial nerve uh, and then remove the parotid that's superficial to it and leave the facial nerve uh, resting on the bed of parotid that's underneath it. Uh, there are times in which we do total parotid operations where we remove portions of the deep lobe. And what you have to do is remove the superficial lobe, identify the facial nerve, lift it off the deeper tissues, which puts the nerve at far greater risk of postoperative dysfunction than if you leave the nerve alone or identify its lateral aspect. Uh, and then you take the tumor out from underneath the nerve. So we can do that if we have to, uh, and certainly for therapeutic purposes it makes sense. Uh, but typically for elective nodal basin dissection, most of the time we would keep it with the superficial parotidectomy, specifically to manage the risk of facial nerve injury. Great. I, I think these are, um, while not really the scope of your article um, and somewhat fundamental, I think it's really helpful for how we conceptualize the management of the tumors that have gotten to that T3, T4 stage either at primary presentation or through recurrence. Do you think about a untreated primary cutaneous SEC different from the SEC that may have now been recurrent after excision by a community general surgeon or a community dermatologist and now presenting with much more aggressive features? Do you approach any sort of salvage surgery different than, than a primary resection? Um, of otherwise treatment-naive tumors? I, I do, and I think that not doing so sort of invites the opportunity to see that patient again six months later with, their, with the subsequent recurrence. I think that when you see a patient that's, that you're trying to salvage, you, know, uh, you have to assume that the treatment that that patient had previously undergone was done correctly, and the reason that the tumor came back was that uh, there was either a margin or perineural disease, or nodal disease that wasn't managed optimally. And so you have to be, you have to be more aggressive. I think that uh, you have to think you know, one step beyond what it looks like the problem is. I think you have to be more aggressive in looking for perineural disease. I think you have to be more aggressive in looking for nodal nets, and more aggressive in managing those things if you were to find them. You know, sometimes managing perineural disease in head and neck cancers gets complicated very quickly. As, it, as, it, uh, as these tumors tend to involve skull-based foramina, require skull-based operations, uh, require um, you know, complex reconstruction, require removal of uh, bone of the maxilla or the mandible, it, it gets complicated fairly quickly. And I think that what you have to do for these patients is to say, you know, now is the time for us to deal with this because if we don't deal with it, it's only going to get worse. Uh, and so. Um, I think it's important, to, especially when dealing with a salvage case, to not pull the punch. To really say we we're going to aggressively look for things because then we're going to aggressively manage them. I I completely agree, and certainly um, once you've seen that patient with a recurrent, you know, infraorbital nerve perineural invasion tracking to skull base, you, you don't forget those patients, and and you feel much more justified in in aggressive treatment. But again, oftentimes there were we're skewed by what our denominator is, right? And yes. the the patients that we see in, in general dermatology, for example, 
are less high risk than in my practice. The patients I see are probably less high risk than the ones you see in your practice. So it, I, I'm just emphasizing the, the importance of maybe not this podcast, but the, the conversation to be had here to ensure that we're all speaking the same language and, and thinking about the disease in the same way. Now, as we talk about your, your article, I want to make sure we hit all the high points that you think are relevant. Um, we, we talked about the fact that maybe scalp tumors, in both of our opinion, tend to cause a little bit more headache, if you, if you want to say it that way, um, <laughs> than other locations. And certainly, um, your rationale has also been that you know if, if I have more aggressive tumors and I treat them with a radical resection, and they do just as well as non-aggressive tumors treated without a radical resection, then that's a very positive thing. Any other main key points that, that you want to highlight for our listeners from the article uh, before we conclude? Well, I think that, you know, this, is, this was a retrospective review. So this is, um, you know, these patients were collected, you know, after the fact. And I think as such, they sort of represent, you know, a real-life snapshot of of practical reality, you know, for example, we, you know, I, I wish I could tell you that we had negative margins in all these cases, but this is the reality of these uh, massive tumors that uh, it's hard for me to get the same margin control that you can get uh, using the most technique. Uh, and, you know, it makes it that kind of thing makes me wonder about how we can, you know, we've, uh, I, we have, uh, I have fantastic colleagues who do most surgery here at my institution. And we're trying to, you know, we we have worked many times together on on combined techniques where uh, the uh, the Mohs moat technique, so to speak, with uh, with Mohs surgery to establish a peripheral margin on one day, and then sort of a more radical, deeper uh, resection, um, you know, the, the next day or within a couple of days, etc. But but how to combine our efforts to to get these patients what we need? I think that's most the most striking thing here is that you know we set out to do big operations in many of these patients. And, uh, and yet, you know, even, even despite that, uh, you know, we have concerns about our margins uh, fairly often. Uh, and, and that should be, you know, the main goal as we look at these data and try to, try to improve our own practice. Absolutely. It sounds like both of us have our work uh, cut out for us there, but I think it's really a great closing on, on the collaboration between head and neck surgery, uh, olaryngology, and, and Mohs surgery, because that too is something that I've been very excited to see across multiple institutions and people are implementing it in, in different ways and probably utilizing the, the Mohs technique far beyond what any, any Mohs surgeon in, in the 60s or 70s could have envisioned. So I'm, I'm very excited uh, about the, the collaboration between the specialties. So with that, I really want to thank you for your time and, and chatting with me today. I think it's always especially pleasant when you have people outside of your specialty who can can teach you so much um, about how they approach a very similar or oftentimes even the same problem. And I think that truly is the future of medicine. The article that we discussed today for our listeners is going to be in the Mohs uh, College Reference Library, which is accessible through the Mohs College website. As I've stated in past podcasts to all of our listeners, please share uh, this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Um, let us know how we're doing and who you'd like to have to, on the show by contacting us at info at Please give us your feedback. We're constantly trying to make the podcast better. With that, I thank you and I thank our guest, 
and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mo's Surgery.